Tyre was a very proud city. And so the form of death that Alexander chose for the inhabitants, the men of Tyre, was on purpose. It was to humiliate and shame them. So uh, even with the Greeks, started with the Assyrians, crucifixion was, a, was just the most shameful death. It was a very, very shameful death. It is why Jesus was crucified, because it was meant to be a shameful death. It was a curse. And so he, um, he executes them. Um, the city of Tyre was rebuilt uh, after this, but he um, conquers it. And then uh, as he's besieging Tyre, he asks the people of Judah, he asks the Jews for help. And the high priest responded to Alexander that as long as they were, as long as Darius was alive, they were pledged to him. And that infuriated Alexander. And so after he conquers Tyre, he turns his attention to all of these peoples and cities who refused to come to his aid and he was going to extract his punishment upon them. So he conquers Tyre in 332 and turns his attention to Judah, angry that they would not come to his aid. But if you remember, before Alexander leaves Macedonia to invade Asia, he has a dream. And in this dream, he sees a man that would end up being dressed as the high priest in Jerusalem. And in this dream, Alexander remembers the breastplate that the high priest, this, this man was wearing and the engraving on this breastplate. And so as Alexander is getting ready now to extract his uh, anger and his vengeance on Judah, in Jerusalem, the high priest is terrified and he prays to God and God tells the high priest to call for a holy day in the city of Jerusalem and to open wide the gates. And as Alexander and his army are approaching, the high priest and the people of Jerusalem all go out to meet Alexander dressed in white. Alexander sees this and is curious and he rides forward by himself and he sees the high priest dressed in priestly garbs with, with the breastplate on and Alexander dismounts his horse and falls prostrate before the high priest. And the high priest was shocked and he says, why, why, are, you, why are you doing this? And he tells him, before I came to Asia, while I was still in Macedonia, I had a dream and I saw you. And the Lord told me in the dream, or you told me in the dream, that I was to come quickly, that I would conquer all of Asia. And then the high priest, as, as, as legend and as, as the historians tell us, the high priest showed, Daniel, uh, showed um, Alexander the Great the scroll of Daniel and interpreted for Alexander the prophecies of Daniel that, that chronicled the Babylonians, the Persians, and now the Greeks. And, and Alexander was in the process of 
fulfilling these prophecies that had been written 300 years prior. And so the high priest believed, I mean, uh, Alexander believed the high priest. And so he asks the high priest, what, what do you want? And the high priest said, we just want to be able to live and worship according to our traditions. Uh, in the sabbatical years, when we have to let our land rest, that you would uh, release us from tribute, from paying tribute. And that the people in the other lands, in Persia, Media, and Babylon, that they too would be able to live and worship according to our, our traditions. And Alexander says, I will grant this. And as soon as I conquer those lands, then I will grant the same to the people, your people there. And Alexander was received well throughout the cities of Judah. In fact, there were Jews who went with him who joined his army to go and conquer the Persians. And he, he promised um, rewards to those who would, would join him. And many took him up on that. So he goes on through Judah and he goes down to Egypt and he conquers Egypt. He selects a site there in Egypt to build what would become the great city of Alexandria. Do you know why it's called Alexandria? It's named after Alexander. He, he has the city built. It's built in honor of him. Uh, now, he, you know, he, he ultimately doesn't see that city built, but that city is built uh, in honor of him. And... Uh, he goes on then after that. He wanted to go further into Egypt and further into Ethiopia, but the war against the Persians would not allow him. So he decided that he would come back to that, but he never did. Uh, so he conquers Egypt and he goes back and he continues his conquer of the Persians. And he goes back up into Syria and into Babylon and and so in 331, uh, Alexander defeats the Persians. Now, he hasn't, he hasn't utterly defeated them yet, but he, he in essence does. Darius is still alive, and Darius is still fleeing from Alexander. <clears throat> and Darius has great respect for Alexander. And as Alexander is pursuing Darius, Alexander has already captured Darius's wife and children and the mother of Darius. And the wife of Darius was pregnant. Um, and Alexander was very kind and respectful. He, he treated them with great kindness and great respect because she was the, the queen and there was the queen mother and the children of the king. And he did not abuse them. He did not ill-treat them in any way. And Darius got word of Alexander's treatment of his wife, mother, and children. And Darius gained great respect for Alexander. So these two men respected each other greatly, though they were enemies. And Darius, on numerous occasions, sent word to Alexander requesting a truce. 
And he says, I'll give you all the land from the Hellespont to, you know, a certain point. And Alexander said, you know, thank you, but no, thank you. I'm going to conquer you. And uh, then he, he hears, tragically, um, the wife of Darius miscarried her children and died. So she was her, advanced in her pregnancy and uh, she had a miscarriage. And in the midst of the miscarriage, she, in fact, died with the children. Uh, I'm, I'm guessing she maybe was having a premature birth and the children, the child and, and the mother died. And this really uh, upset Alexander. He was very upset that the wife of Darius and the child of Darius died under his watch. And so word was sent to Darius uh, in the, uh, so Alexander honored them, gave them a very honorable treatment of the body and the burial. <clears throat> and word was sent to Darius uh, that Alexander's, Alexander's kind gestures, that he honored his wife in death and he was pained because of this. And it caused Darius to have even greater respect for Alexander because he knew Alexander didn't have to do this, but it just spoke that Alexander was an honorable man. And so Darius sends another peace proposal and he says to Alexander, he said, I will give you all of the land from the Hellespont, which is the western coast of Asia, all the way to the Euphrates River, if, if we can come to, to terms. And I will give you like an ungodly amount of silver and all of this stuff. And I'll give you my daughter in marriage and give you all of this land and all of this wealth as a dowry. And Alexander sends word back to Darius. And basically what he said to him was, he said, I, I respect your offer. Um, but he said, I, I will pursue you to the death because you are such a great man and you garner such great respect. Um, you would, even though you might enter into a truce with me, you would be a threat to me if you were alive because your men love you, your people love you. And, and I am forced to, to see this to the death. So this word was sent back to Darius and basically his men said, you know, you're going to have to fight. And, um, and so that, that's what happened. Um, so Darius dies in 330. And the way Darius dies is there's a guy named uh, Bessus who was with Darius, uh, and this guy decides that basically um, Darius is not going to win this war. So me and my men are going to do Alexander a favor. We're going to kill Darius. And so in a, in a battle, they kind of, they turn on Darius. And Darius is mortally wounded, and he, he flees the battle, and he's in, this, he's in this chariot or this cart. And 
his horses are wounded, he's wounded, and finally his horses die, and he's there in his cart mortally wounded, and um, these Greek soldiers find him. And, and Darius is alive, and, and he tells the Greek soldiers, the commander who finds him, he says, go back to Alexander. And he said, take my, my right hand. He said, take my hand. And he said, now go back to Alexander and give Alexander your right hand and tell him this is the right hand of Darius. And thank him for the honor he showed to my wife and my child. And, and the honor he continues to show to my mother. And, um, and so Darius dies in this cart. So they ride back and they tell Alexander. And Alexander is like heartbroken that Darius dies in this manner. And Alexander comes to the, to the place where Darius is dead in this wagon and he sees the dead body of Darius and he, he just grieves, he weeps because he counted Darius such a great man. And this great man, this great king, this great soldier, this honorable man died such a dishonorable death. And so Alexander decides that he's going to avenge the death of Darius. So this guy who thinks he's doing Alexander a favor by killing Darius now becomes the enemy of Alexander. And when this guy finds out, he's like running as fast as he can with his army. And Alexander just relentlessly pursues him. He's, they go to these cold regions up in the mountains. And he thinks, surely Alexander will not follow me. And Alexander follows him. And so Alexander sends the body of Darius back to the mother of Darius, who is being held by, by the Greek army. And they give Darius a, a funeral worthy of a, of a Persian king. And they give him great honors in, in death. And then Alexander continues his conquest. So for the, next, uh, for the next year, Alexander is hunting down this guy named Bessus, who betrayed and mortally wounded Darius. And he, he, uh, when the men who are with Bessus realize that Alexander is not going to stop tracking them and hunting them, they realize that um, we're, we're not going to defeat Alexander. So they decide... We'll take our, our commander here, who was disloyal to his commander, and, and we'll bind him and take him to Alexander, and we'll tell Alexander, here's the guy you're looking for. S spare us. And that's exactly what happened. So the brother of Darius, his name was Oxithres. Alexander actually makes him part of his personal bodyguard. So the brother, brother of Darius, this Persian brother of the king becomes an ally of Alexander. Alexander, because he was so honorable toward his brother, and he gives the brother of Darius this honorable position in his personal bodyguard. You know, Alexander is not an insecure guy. And so he's like, hey, brother of Darius, 
Your brother was a great man. I honor him. You know, you're a great man. Join my personal bodyguard. And so this guy does. So Alexander is sending his army and they're pursuing this guy. And so here come these guys with this, this fella, stripped naked, tied up. And they bring him to Alexander and Alexander's army. And it's, of course, um, they all laugh because the guy is naked. And so it's a, it's a great humility of this supposedly great military commander. And Alexander delivers this guy, Bessus, into the, into the hands of the brother of Darius and gives him permission to do whatever you want with him. And I'll spare you the details, but uh, suffice it to say, he died a very unpleasant and slow death. Um, and so they continue going forward. They're pressing, they're pressing east, and Alexander now has moved across Asia. He's taken Babylon. He sits on the throne of Darius. And when he sits on the throne of Darius... It is, it, it marks the beginning of the Macedonian Empire. So this is in 330 BC. He sits on the throne of, of Darius. His empire is established now as replacing the Persian Empire because now he's taken the Persian capitals and he is sitting on the throne of the Persian king. The very throne that used to be Nebuchadnezzar's throne. So we're seeing the fulfillment, continued fulfillment. So here is the the arms and belly of brass that represents Greece. With the death of Darius, we have, we have the, the uh, ram with two great high horns, with one horn being higher. Uh, now, that goat with one great horn has now trampled to death the ram. And it, in that vision that we see in Daniel 8, it's a picture of Alexander conquering Darius, con the Greeks conquering the Persians. And so he sits on the throne and his empire has been established and he keeps pressing east. And now he is continuing on into uh, India. Um, 328, he gets to the basically the, the eastern edge of Asia, the, the Persian Empire, and he now is focused on taking India. He's conquered all of the Persian Empire. And in 328, he goes into India and begins to conquer lands and cities there. And he does that for the next three years till about 325 B.C., and then in 325 B.C., uh, his men, they, they face a lot of resistance. And, and basically, he just kind of gets tired. And uh, his men were like, can we just go back? And so they turn back. And uh, in 325, he begins his return back toward the lands that he had already conquered. Now, <clears throat> what's significant about Alexander the Great and what's significant for us today, I think I've already touched on this, but everywhere Alexander went, he, he put Greeks in charge. And those Greeks were basically to uh, reorient cities and governments in, in, a, in a Hellenized or Greek form. So 
the Hellenization of the wor world is just, we, we might think of it if we get, it's not a word, but we could say the Greekification of the world. So the Hellenes were the Greeks. So the Hellenization of the world is basically the world being um, culturally conformed to Greek culture. So the Greek culture became the culture of the known world. So what was once Babylonia, what was once the Persian Empire, now it's conquered by the Greeks. And Alexander would make sure that those cities and those areas that were ruled were ruled by Greeks who were to teach people the language, change the forms of government and, and spread the the Greek culture throughout the world. Now, Alexander's doing this, but who's really behind this? Well, God is. And along with the Hellenization of the world, guess what the world obtained? They obtained a single language. Greek became the language of the world. So where you had all of these tribes, whether they were Medes or Persians or Scythians or Ethiopians or Egyptians or uh, Arabians, uh, all of these different tribes. And as you read this history, it's people groups you've, I've never even heard of. And there were just thousands of people groups all over this area. Well, all of these people groups came under Greek rule. And as Greek ruled them, as the Greeks ruled them and governed them, Alexander was a very uh, fair man. He wasn't like a harsh guy. Uh, and so he's teaching people. He's trying to educate people. He's trying to help people live better lives with a better, more uh, organized forms of government. And eventually the world embraces the Greek language, the Greek culture. So now all of these tribes still speak their language, but Greek is the language of commerce. So this is why uh, you know, about 100 years after the death of Alexander, after he divides his kingdom, the Greeks wrote the Septuagint. Seventy Hebrew scholars translate the Hebrew scriptures into the Greek language because the majority of Hebrews scattered across the world speak Greek. They don't even speak Hebrew anymore. And they couldn't read the scriptures and they couldn't understand uh, you know, the liturgies in the synagogue because they're in Hebrew. And a lot of the people living in the world at that time who were Jewish didn't speak Hebrew. And so the Jews translated the Hebrew scriptures into what we know today as the Septuagint. And so when Jesus is born and Jesus is walking the world, Greek is the language. Now, I believe Jesus spoke Hebrew and Aramaic as well as Greek. And I'm not saying there's some people believe that the scriptures were also written in Greek and in Hebrew. And I don't doubt that at all. But for the majority of the Hebrews living in the world at that time, especially those outside of Israel. The, the, the majority of the Hebrews, the, the common Hebrew people who still lived in Babylonia, in Asia, in, in now living in Europe, in, in the Greek, in the European continent. They've lived there now for, for centuries, literally. And they've spoken Greek. And they're living in a Greek culture. And that's what, that's their language. And all of that came about 
because of Alexander's conquest. And he set this in place. And so when he is returning back now, he's headed back west. Now, a funny thing, the guys he leaves in charge think that Alexander is never coming back. It's like this guy is not coming back. There is no way he's going to survive what he's attempting to do. It's it's crazy what he's trying to do. And and so a lot of these guys put in place really thought that they would never see Alexander. And so they just kind of set up their their own little empires and they were corrupt and they were cruel to the people. And as Alexander comes back through, the people began to tell him, hey, the guys you left in charge, they've been mistreating us. They're corrupt. They're they're not what you know you were to us. What's the deal? And so Alexander begins to identify those rulers and he just begins to systematically execute them and make examples out of them. And, and the word spread and these other rulers, they're like, oh my gosh, Alexander's back. And he's like killing people like us. And so, you know, these guys that were corrupt, they're like stealing and trying to flee with money to, to get away from Alexander. And uh, he cleaned house. He, uh, he did not let these guys get away with that corruption and injustice. And so um, that's in 325. And this continues. So there's a lot. I mean, I have really just skipped over a lot, but there is a lot of history. A lot of history that is taking place as Alexander is, you know, I mean, you know, those years in India when he's fighting uh, the, the nations in India. So we we say the Indians um, for on the on the in the nation of India. But but there were India, this huge nation, it was divided. It's one nation today. But when Alexander is conquering it, it's. Just nations. It's made up of all these different nations and different kingdoms. And uh, Alexander and his army had a difficult time conquering India, but they conquered it. And that difficulty conquering India is what made his men finally get him to, to go back. And he's, you know, got his navy there. He's got ships sailing up the Indus River. And he's, I mean, it's amazing what this man did in such a short period of time. So you figure in six years, in five to six years, Alexander basically, I, I mean, he conquers the world. It's, it's really, really quite amazing. And so then in, in, he comes back um, and in 323, Alexander the Great dies. Now, I know I didn't get very far tonight, but I'm going to I'm going to stop there tonight because I, I want to uh, I want to take a little bit of time and talk about the death of Alexander and what transpired as a result of his death, because what happened as a result of Alexander's death has 
great impact on our lives. It's, it's impacted our lives today. And it, it absolutely impacted the history of Israel in a great way. It set the stage for the birth of Jesus, the coming of Christ. And so what we call the, those 400 years that, that are very often called the 400 years of silence from Malachi, the last um, recorded prophet in the Old Testament, to the last Old Testament prophet. Who's the last Old Testament prophet? Huh? John the Baptist is the last Old Testament prophet. Malachi is not the last Old Testament prophet. John the Baptist is. Uh, but there's 400 years be between Malachi and John. And those years were called the years of silence because there was no prophetic voice to God's people. But God's people had the scriptures. And they had the prophecies of Daniel. Now what I do want us to do, I want us to go to Daniel chapter 8. And we've already kind of looked at this. And I don't want to read the whole thing, but I want to kind of just summarize this again. So Daniel chapter eight begins with these words in the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, to me, Daniel. Now, remember, Belshazzar is the guy who sees the handwriting on the wall. He is actually the king's son. And the king, the guy, the rightful king, didn't want to be king. And he just gave power to his son and said, you rule the kingdom and I'm going to go do what I like to do. Uh, he liked birds and he liked architecture, but he didn't like being king. And, and so Belshazzar is the king. He's reigning. It's why when he tells Daniel... Uh, when he brings Daniel in, when they see the handwriting on the wall, he says to Daniel, uh, because you've been able to interpret this handwriting, I'll make you third in charge in the kingdom. Why third in charge? Because Belshazzar's father was first in charge. Belshazzar was second in charge. And now he says to Daniel, I'll make you third in charge. And Daniel says, live forever, O king, but, you know, keep your, keep your position. In fact... According to this handwriting on the wall, you're going to die tonight. I hate to tell you that. And Belshazzar honored Daniel for giving him the interpretation. And that night, sure enough, the Bible says he died. He was defeated by who? Well, by the Persians that we just saw who were ultimately defeated by the Greeks. Now, the reason I want to bring us back to Daniel chapter 8 is because we've already seen two visions. So remember, the first vision of these four great world empires appeared in the dream of Nebuchadnezzar. And in his first year, at the beginning of the book of Daniel, this is where we begin. And then later on, Daniel has a vision of four beasts. And remember, it was a lion... It was a leopard, it was a bear, and then it was this terrible um, beast with ten horns that was more fierce and more horrible than all the rest of them. Well, it's a vision of the same thing. 
It's the four world empires, Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome. So we see that vision of those four beasts in Daniel chapter 7. And then in Daniel chapter 8, Daniel has another vision. So that vision of the four beasts was in the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon. You go to, to Daniel chapter 8, and Daniel says in the third year. So two years later, Daniel has another vision. And in this vision, he sees two animals. He sees a ram, which is a male sheep, and he sees a goat, a male goat. So he sees a male sheep, a ram, and he sees a male goat. And he describes the ram with two horns, one being higher than the other. This is Medo-Persia. And then he sees this male goat with a, with a notable horn between its eyes coming across the land and his feet don't even touch the ground. And he crashes into this ram and tramples him to death. And so Daniel sees this vision and Daniel doesn't know what this vision meant. But let's see, let's go to verse 8. So the uh, male goat tramples the ram uh, into the ground and no one could deliver the ram from the hand of the male goat. Well, that's what we just read about. Alexander pursues Darius, Darius dies, Alexander tramples the Persian kingdom, sits on the throne and establishes his rule. This is Daniel's vision fulfilled. The, the, the vision we see here in Daniel chapter 8. We just, we just read about and talked about that fulfillment. But I want to draw your attention now to verse 8. Therefore, the male goat grew very great, but when he became strong, the large horn was broken. So that notable horn was broken, and in its place, four notable ones came up toward the four winds of heaven. Now, I'm not going to go into detail on this. We're going to really talk about this next, next uh, week when we go a little bit more in depth with, into to Alexander's death and what happened to his kingdom. But here is what was shown to Daniel. Um, Um, you know, let's just say 200, 200 plus years, 200 years, uh, give a decade. About 210 years later, this is basically fulfilled. And um, what Daniel sees in this vision, 210 years later, it's fulfilled. Daniel's long dead. Um, and so everybody who's a part of the Babylonian court, they're all gone. But this has been recorded. Now, I want to I read the rest of this chapter, and I want us just to kind of pay attention. Uh, and we'll just read it kind of as an overview, and we'll talk a little bit more about this next week. So, um, 
the male goat grew strong, male goat grew strong, the notable horn was broken, four horns grew up in, in its place. Four notable ones came up toward the four winds of heaven, north, south, east, and west. And out of one of them came a little horn which grew exceeding great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. The glorious land is the land of Israel. And it grew up in the host of heaven. It grew up to the host of heaven, and it cast down some of the host and some of the stars to the ground. Now, there is, this is, this is prophetic language. This is uh, metaphorical language here. And it grew up, uh, and he even exalted himself as high as the prince of hosts, and by him the daily sacrifices were taken away, and the place of his sanctuary was cast down because of transgressions, an army was given unto over to the horn to oppose the daily sacrifices, and he cast truth down to the ground. He did all of this and prospered. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to the certain one um, who was speaking, How long will the vision be concerning the daily sacrifices and the transgressions of desolation, the giving of both the sanctuary and the host to be trampled underfoot? And he said, 4,300 uh, days, uh, uh, 4,200, I'm sorry, four, <laughs> I'm so sorry. For 2,300 days, then the sanctuary shall be cleansed. Uh, that's, um, that's three and a half years, or, or two and a half years, three and a half years, 2,000. 300 days. Three, yeah. 360, they use a lunar calendar, so it's 360 days in a year. Then it happened when I, Daniel, had seen the vision and was seeking the meaning, then sudden, that suddenly there stood before me one having the appearance of a man, and I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Ulai who called to me and said, and said, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. So he sees a man, and the man calls to Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. So he came near where I stood, and when he came, I was afraid and fell on my face. But he said to me, understand, son of man, that the vision refers to the time of the end. Now, well, let me just go ahead and read on, and then we'll, we're going to come back to, to this uh, verse 17. Now, as he was speaking with me, Gabriel, I was in a deep sleep with my face to the ground, but he touched me and stood me upright, and he said, Look, I'm making known to you what shall happen in the latter time of the indignation. For at the appointed time the end shall be. The ram which you saw having two horns... They, they are, so pay attention to this language, they are the kings of Media and Persia. Well, there's, there's the, there's the uh, ram. Who are they? The kings of Media and Persia. And the male goat is the kingdom of Greece. The large horn that is between its eyes is the first king, that's Alexander. As for the broken horn and the four that stood up in its place, four kingdoms shall rise Arise out of that nation, out of Greece, but not with its power. I mean, this, is, this is 
the history we all know. Well, we might not know it, but it's there. It's there to be read and learned. I mean, Daniel, God is giving Daniel detailed history, world history right here. It's, it's absolutely amazing. Now, as he was speaking with me, I was in a deep sleep, fell to the ground. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, as for the broken horn, these are the four kingdoms. They'll rise up, but not with this power. Verse 23. And in the latter time of whose kingdom? In the latter time of their kingdom. So the Bible is telling us when all of this is happening. We, we very often read this and we say this is a future time yet to come. No, this has already been fulfilled. Because the angel, under God's direction, tells Daniel, this is what this means. In the latter time of their kingdoms, the kingdoms of these four kings that will rise up but won't have the power of the first king. When the transgressors, these kings and their kingdoms, have reached their fullness, a king shall arise having fierce features, who understands sinister schemes, his power shall be mighty, but not by his own power. He shall destroy fearfully and shall prosper and thrive. He shall destroy the mighty and also the holy people. Through his cunning, he shall cause deceit to prosper under his rule. He shall exalt himself in his heart. He shall destroy men in their prosperity. And he shall even rise against the prince of princes, but he shall be broken without human means or human hands or broken without hands is what it literally says there. And the vision of the evenings and mornings, which was told is true. Therefore, seal up the vision for it refers to many days in the future. And I, Daniel, fainted and was sick for days afterward. And I rose and went about the king's business. I was astonished by the vision, but no one understood it. So he was given the interpretation, but he didn't understand it. And it was greatly disturbing to him. Now, what I really wanted to point out in there is that this tells us who this is referring to. Therefore, we know the time frame that this is referring to. This is leading us to the birth of Christ, the coming of Christ, the Messiah. So Daniel goes on. We're not doing a study of Daniel, but we go on to the 70 weeks of Daniel. And we believe that, or many, we don't, I don't believe, I'm not sure what some of you believe, but I do not believe the 70 weeks of Daniel are yet to be fulfilled. I don't believe we've got 69 of them that have been fulfilled and we're still waiting for the last week to be fulfilled. I don't believe that's true. I don't believe it's true because it doesn't line up with what Daniel has been shown by the angel. Uh, everybody in the day of Jesus' birth was waiting for the Messiah because they could do the interpretation of Daniel's visions. And they could count the years just like anybody else could. And they knew it was time for the Messiah to come. They were looking for the Messiah because they had Daniel's prophecy. And so, you know, we talk about this. Uh, I, I had some interesting conversations during my, um, during my, um, during my time at the retreat, um, just talking about different things. Um, 
you know, and, and one of the things we were talking about, because one, two of the pastors that were there, um, one of them, I had met him for the first time last year. And he pastors Amazing Grace Baptist Church down near Seguin, Texas. And, um, and another guy pastors a Baptist church near LaGrange. Uh, and both of these guys have become post-mill. You know, one, one, the guy who pastors the church in LaGrange, he was trained at Dallas Theological Seminary. And that's like the, the pinnacle of dispensational theology is DTS. Um, and so he's like, man, you know, I became a post-millennial. And, and he said, um, it's created some waves. But he said, you know, I got to be faithful to the scriptures. And, and so both of these guys are, were in dispensational churches and they've become post-mill. And so they're, they're teaching their people. And so we were having some really interesting discussions about this. And, you know, and one of them is... Is the world getting worse and worse and worse? Well, you know, in one perspective, you, you read the news, you watch the TV, and you think, oh, the world's getting worse every day. But if you actually take a step back and look at history, if you're, if you're intellectually honest with yourself, and you can, can just kind of put away what you've been told and taught for so many years about how the world's getting worse and worse and worse, if you just take a step back and look at things objectively, you could start in the year uh, 30, 33 AD. You could start with the crucifixion of Jesus. You go back to creation, but you can start with the crucifixion of Jesus and just look at the history of the world from that point to this point and then tell me honestly the world is getting worse. Did anybody drink water out of the tap today? Yeah, I did too. And guess what? I don't have dysentery. And guess what? When I drank that water out of the tap, I didn't even, the thought didn't even enter my mind that I could die from drinking this water. But do you know how many millions and millions and millions of people have died and and. And hundreds of thousands of people still die today in the world just from drinking dirty water. I mean, it's becoming fewer and fewer and fewer. And even in the nations where they have dirty water, now we have, you know, I got one. Joshua gave me one for Christmas one year. I got this straw that I could go out to my pond full of duck poo uh, and I could drink that water through that straw and it's purified. Or I can just drink it out of my tap and it's treated and I have to worry about things killing me. Do you know how long in human history you couldn't do that? A long time. You know why we can drink tap water now and it doesn't kill us? Because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's why. Because the gospel gave freedom to men and when men became free and when the gospel brought peace to the world and men had peace and prosperity, they could create things, invent things because they're made in the image of God. And so they're creative, they're inventive. You know, uh, uh, what, what do they say? Um, necessity is the mother of invention. And so if you just take a step back and you look at history, 
Yeah, there's ups and downs, great crashes maybe even. We might, I believe we're living in one of those times right now where, you know, based on the ground we're living right now, yeah, we could say things, things are getting worse. For the church, I think they are. But if we look at the overall trend of humanity, man, we are. We've come so far, it's not even funny. It's like, you, we should be rejoicing. It's glorious what God has done. Well, how did he do that? He did it through the gospel. Of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end. There's not going to be a parenthesis even. There's not going to be an end to the increase of his government and peace. That's talking about Jesus. That's Isaiah writing five centuries before the baby Jesus is born. And he says, when that baby's born, of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end. And here we are 2,000 years later, living in a world that has been gloriously improved by the gospel of Christ. And you know what our job is? Our job is to continue working for its glorious improvement, not waiting to be raptured out. And there are a lot of Christians waiting to be raptured out. And so we talked about this too. People who hold to a premillennial dispensational view, what's going to happen to them? Because their theologies are falling apart. And the consensus was that they, they will migrate to a historical premillennial view because that's, that's what would make sense. Because a historic premillennial person has to also agree that God is working and the gospel is working and things are getting better. The only argument would be is, is, is something that's going to happen that's going to cause the uh, Christ is going to return and then the millennial begin, the millennium begins. Or are we living in the millennium and we're waiting for the return of Christ? But this dispensational part where the church is going to be raptured out and go to a marriage feast. And then, you know, are people getting saved during the tribulation? Some people say no. Some people say yes. Some people say, well, you know, I say, well, are Gentiles getting saved? If they are, they're not part of the bride of Christ. Who are they then? They're having a marriage supper in heaven. The people getting saved, they don't get to go to the wedding. Are they legitimately married to Jesus if they're not part of the marriage supper? You say, well, only Jews are getting saved during the tribulation. OK, are they not part of the bride? According to the Bible, they have to be. Some, and I know the dispensational position of some, and there is division in this camp, what we would call hyper-dispensationalists, because some people might call, uh, uh, you know, I hold a preterist view, so uh, I'm not a hyper-preterist. I don't consider myself one. I do believe in a physical return of Jesus. He's coming back. He is. He's going to rule and reign on this earth and we're going to rule and reign with him. In fact, we are ruling and reigning right now on this earth. He's given us that authority. We're, we're causing, we're working to see his kingdom come, his will be done. But there's people who believe that the church is going to be married to Jesus and Israel is going to be married to, to Jehovah, to the father. That's dispensational theology. Now, and, and I asked one of the pastors, I said, look, 
you know, I haven't, I, I'm not seminary trained, but I do love to read my Bible and study my Bible. I said, uh, and it was a fellow from England who's very trained, very educated. And I said, what, what do you do if you believe that? And I said, there are people that believe that. They write books all the time. I said, what do you do with Paul's? I said, I, I, don't, I don't know how to answer this. What do you do with Paul's? There is no longer June or Greek. If there's no longer June or Greek, there's only the church, the one new man. Then how do you have a bride of Jehovah and a bride of Jesus? That is, and I just said, in my opinion, that's heretical. That's heresy. They want to say Calvinism's heresy. The sovereignty of God is heresy. The perseverance of the saints, heresy. No, that's heresy. That eternally the church is going to live in heaven with Jesus and Israel's going to live on earth with the Father. Where is that in the Bible? It's not in the Bible. It's not there. And, and so I digress somewhat, but I want to, I want to point out, I wanted to, to show Daniel chapter 8 here because the Bible gives us the best interpretation of the Bible. And if we don't read this carefully, we're going to project this to be talking about all kinds of things that haven't happened yet. But if we read this, as it's written, it tells us exactly who this is talking about. It's talking about these Greek kings. And it's talking about the time in that intertestamental period. Those 400 years that saw Babylonian, Persian, for at least half of that time, more than half of that time, it's the Greeks ruling. They're ruling Israel. And they're divided into four kingdoms. And so we're going to look at the impact those particular kingdoms had on Israel and on the Jewish people and what happened during that time. And you come to the end of this and Daniel is told let me see where is it? And the uh, Seal up. Yeah, I'm sorry. 26. Thank you. Therefore, seal up the vision for it refers to many days in the future. Now, we know if the fulfillment in the end of the 70 weeks marks the coming of the Messiah. And, it, and, and in that time period, it marks the end of the Greek Empire and the beginning of the Roman Empire. Well, we know that happened in that happened in 49 Actually, it was later than that. Um, 49 B.C. is when Caesar crossed the Rubicon. So about 30 years before uh, the birth of Christ, Octavian defeats Mark Antony and Cleopatra. And that marked the end of the Greek Empire and the beginning of the Roman Empire. And then in, in, in three decades later, four decades later, Jesus is born. 
which marks the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy, the son who was promised, upon whose shoulder the government will rest and the increase of that government and peace will have no end. And this prophecy in Isaiah, that child, that promised child, whose kingdom and government will have no end, peace will have no end, corresponds to the very first vision we saw here in Daniel when Nebuchadnezzar in his dream saw the stone cut out without hands that was thrown to crash at the feet that represented the Roman Empire. And that stone grew into a mountain that filled the entire world. And it represented a kingdom that what? Would never be overthrown and would never have an end. Who is that? That's Christ. So we have the mountain. We have the stone growing into a mountain that fills the earth. That is absolutely consistent with the son who is born, whose government and peace, the increase of which will have no end. We're living in that time right now. That baby boy is not a baby boy anymore. He's the, the, the ruling king of kings and lord of lords. And his kingdom is growing into a mountain that will fill the earth. Even until he comes again and sets foot to rule and to reign on this earth when heaven and earth will come together. We're living in that time where that mountain is filling the earth. And guess what? We're here for such a time as this to be the people that would do our part to see that kingdom come, to see his will be done, to see that mountain continue to grow. Even though it may look like things aren't going too well around us. I submit to you, look again with new eyes, with fresh vision and see what God is doing.